0: Welcome to Rising. We've got a great show for you today. Michael Schellenberger is here in studio to let us know about his latest bombshell reporting, so we're very excited about that. And we've got a lot of news to get
1: to. Take it away, Brianna. All right. Well, up first, a newly public Department of Justice search warrant finds special prosecutor Jack Smith sought Twitter data on all lists of Twitter users who have favorited or retweeted tweets posted by former President Donald Trump in his investigation into the president for allegedly trying to overturn the 2020 election. and the filing, Smith also asked for warrants to information on Trump's geolocation, private messages, search history, and contact information.
0: Hmm. The former president has yet to comment on this development, but he did take to Truth Social this morning to air some grievances with MSNBC. MSDNC users uh, uh, free government-approved airwaves, and yet it is nothing but a 24-hour hit job on Donald J. Trump and the Republican Party for purposes of election interference. It is the world's biggest political contribution to the radical left. Democrats, who, by the way, are destroying our country, our so called government should come down hard on them, make them pay for their illegal political activity. Much more to come. Watch. Trump was met with a mixture of cheers and boos during an appearance on the field during the Palmetto Bowl last week. The Real Clear Politics average of general election polling finds Trump leading President Biden by two points in the overall uh, matchup. Obviously, what really matters is the swing states, where he is also... Um, destroying Biden Mm -hmm. right now, although um, I can't wait to see new polling on that because I think it's been a few weeks at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm curious what you make of this, uh, uh, trying to get a a search warrant for this uh, Twitter data. The data that pertains to, say, Trump's whereabouts, uh, you know, I can see an argument as to why that might have something to do with intentionality or what claims are being made about the who, where, what, and when of January 6th. That kind of information, cell phone tower pinging, is used to trace defendants in all kinds of other cases. I have to hear the argument, but that seems more, less attenuated from what he's actually being charged with. Why there's an inquiry, into lists of people who interacted with the president's tweet that is giving that is feeling a lot more 1984 to me
0: Very Orwellian which by the way has to be a lot of people of I mean course. he was I think he was like the most followed account or something on or was way up there He, he was his way up massive there, Massive sure. engagement um, Yeah, I don't know what they're that that feels like very much spying on Americans um, possibly for the purposes of of, uh, of, of what? Of, of chilling political speech, of punishing people for engaging with Donald Trump? I mean, you know, keep in mind, and th- this is part of what we're talking about with Michael Schellenberger today, is the pervasive efforts by so-called misinformation cops to monitor, to track, and then to um, to, to have moderated um, edgy, contrarian political speech that they don't like, all based on their belief that, uh, you know, for all the accusations of, 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 of um, Trump—of you know, denying the outcome of the election. These people all—their whole world orbits around the idea that uh, Hillary Clinton should have been the legitimate winner of the 2016 election and would have, if not for harmful Russian speech on uh, on the platforms, primarily on Facebook. Mm -hmm. That is their cardinal belief. It is utterly—it's been contradicted now over and over again by by, um, sober— news stories that eventually were able to put in context that the amount of Russian—yes, there were Russian bots, and yes, they were sending it, but it it was not—it was a drop in the bucket. There's no way it was narrowly uh, tailored, targeted enough to the swing voters in a Mm -hmm. couple states. It's it's not—it's fanciful now to describe that as the outcome, but that is their belief. And this
1: isn't even—and this isn't even about that. This is ostensibly about election—this is about um, Trump—Donald Trump overturning the election, right? This isn't about— the abstraction of what russian bots were able to how russian bots were able to influence them and the other thing about this is that unless they're talking about deleted tweets that information is
0: public right. you can They go want to I mean tweet. they want draft tweet they want um, right, things that the, maybe he started to say and then did not actually tweet. But list
1: of Twitter users who have favorited or retweeted yeah, tweets nuts. posted by the former president. I mean, are you just too lazy to go to the tweet and open it up and just take a list of all of the people and, who are?
0: And don't you you worry? You know, we've I've raised these concerns and we have somewhat different perspectives on, on some of it, and that's fair. And you know, they're bringing their prosecution and they'll try to prove it. But it, it this is the fear that a part of I th- the part of the Jack Smith indictment versus like the Georgia indictment it, it there is a speech component of it that is focused on when you're when you're looking for his t- because I'm sorry the things he tweeted the things he said about the election they could be wrong. They could be harmful. They could be Something you you would uh, you would impeach and remove him from his president for but they're not it can't be criminal Offense unless it's unless you're you're finding an actual plot to do something criminal just his his provocative messaging that he was the winner is not, that's not
1: illegal. Yeah, and I, and I do think it's a kind of misstep from an optics perspective as well. This, these cases just really aren't or shouldn't be about what happened on 1-6. 1-6 is a misnomer. It really is the scheme that's being mm-hmm. alleged is the two weeks preceding it and the uh, falsification of the promulgation of these fake slate electors and all of that. I, I wanna ask you also what you uh, make of uh, Donald Trump's characterization of MSDNC as being a 24-hour hit piece generator on Donald Trump. I don't think that's untrue, but is that really not just a feature of our bifurcated yeah. two-party media system? Fox does what Fox does. MSNBC yeah. does what MSNBC. Sorry, no, I MSDNC. can't say it. MSDNC does. I mean, yeah. what's the grievance? Right, here, really. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah it's that's it's, uh, it's that's just pointless complaining. Um, yes. yeah, I, th- yeah, right. Fox is a 24-hour commercial for generally Republican causes. Uh, although he, Fox, uh, Trump is not very happy with Fox these days either because they do uh, air some criticisms of him, which he doesn't like very much. Um, you know, you're you're welcome to complain about these cable channels. You can complain all you want about MSNBC. We do. We complain about CNN. Um, I I think they put out some bad ideas, but that's their right to do that. We don't. His idea that the government should come after them. um, I I just don't even take it seriously. Maybe that's a mistake to not take it seriously because it's just kind of Trump bloviating, but it's very bad. That's exactly not what we want, is the government coming after people for speech. And in fact, a government, and this is I think very important and something conservative, if they're hearing what Trump is saying, have to get this through your head. If you empower a government bureaucracy to go after with the idea that it's going to punish MSNBC for bad or anti-conservative speech, what it's actually going to do is harass Fox, because the actual bureaucrats <laughs> will be sy- more sympathetic to MSNBC every time.
2: So, yeah, I, don't do that. idea. I bad think that's idea. fair.
1: And I also <laughs> like your point that there is—you the, know, Fox News will air some crit- critique of Donald Trump. It will air uh, his opponents in the Republican primary. There is, in fact, a Republican primary. The same can be true on the Democratic side of the aisle. Uh, Marianne williamsons uh, I believe he's now her um, campaign manager—tweeted out last night, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, and Nikki Haley have all had CNN town halls this cycle. Mary Williamson deserves to have one as well. Like, that is kind of an incredible thing. As much as Donald Trump even is characterizing uh, MSNBC as MSDNC, they are willing to have—maybe it's just never Trump Republicans, but they also had Mike Pence and Nikki Haley have CNN town halls before they will have the leading challenger to the Democratic candidate on the liberal channel.
0: Yeah, I don't know if they don't want to admit that there are people (laughs) running within the Democratic coalition against Biden, even at a time where so many voters, so many Democratic voters are dissatisfied with Biden, say they want an alternative, think he's too old to run. But uh, you're right that they're just not—they're not— they're not speaking to those candidates with anywhere near the level of seriousness and attention that they are platforming the other Republican candidates, as is, as is Fox. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, that's MSNBC what gets you do
1: labeled that. MSDNC. <laughs> Stick around with us. We'll have more rising right after this. Pressure is on, per reporting in The New York Times. Democrats in the Senate are losing patience with President Joe Biden's total embrace of Israel and its war on Gaza. They want the president to start placing conditions on aid and assistance to the IDF, ASAP. Twenty or so senators want explicit expressed assurances from the Netanyahu government on Israel's commitment to protecting civilians in Gaza. Here's what Joe Biden had to say about such conditions last week.
3: Well, I think that's a a, a worthwhile thought, but I don't think if I started off with that, we'd ever gotten to where we are today. We have to take this a piece of the time.
1: Now, Senator Minority Leader and top Republican Mitch McConnell was less open to the notion of conditions on aid. He told reporters it was a ridiculous idea to condition our assistance to Israel on their meeting our standards. It seems to me it's totally unnecessary.
0: Yesterday, the House passed a resolution affirming Israel's right to exist. Per the resolution, this Congress also recognizes that denying Israel's right to exist is a form of anti-Semitism. Now, it was that notion in particular that led Republican Representative Thomas Massey to vote no on this resolution, writing on Twitter, I agree with the title reaffirming the state of Israel's right to exist and much of the language, but I'm voting no on the resolution because it equates anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is deplorable, but Expanding it to include criticism of Israel is not helpful. Massey and Representative Rashida Tlaib were the only members of Congress in the chamber not to support the bill. I believe Tlaib voted present. Um, So, Massey, someone uh, I have a lot of. admiration for, as a libertarian-leaning um, Republican. Um, he also—he um, he has voted against many resolutions of this nature uh, in terms of the Israel um, conflict, and is, I think, more skeptical of funding them um, no matter what, which now de- Democrats are talking about. I think they're reading the tea leaves. I think they're seeing how— Uh, unpopular President Joe Biden is becoming with members of their coalition because the perception that he's not doing enough to restrain um, Israel's actions. I think it's frustrating that McConnell, uh, who is so old and out of touch with where the Republican base is on so many issues, um, just said—it doesn't even make any sense. What, What he said is just wrong. It is not, in fact, crazy to expect that we would get something in return for giving another country a bunch of money that it would be predicated on some kind of agreement for how it would be spent that we what we have to we have to fund everyone and attach no conditions to it what is conservative about that point of view in fact it's not conservative and actual genuine conservatives out in the wild conservative voters do not agree with that they yeah. don't think we should unconditionally send their tax dollars overseas no strings attached
1: it's already uh, U.S. law to, pay, to place conditions on our, aid to, to our military aid to foreign countries. They're not supposed to use it in violation of international law. There is, when we talk about a special relationship with Israel, increasingly what's becoming public knowledge, but what has always been clear, is that it is not being held to the same standards. It's not that it's being treated differently and worse than other countries in the world because it is a Jewish state, which is often the criticism that Israel pushes back with when they are criticized as a country, but that, frankly, they've been given more favorable terms than any other country in the world. Despite being one of the richest countries in the world, it is one of the largest beneficiaries of U.S. aid. And now the concern is, even in the midst of what every humanitarian organization has said is an an unprecedented crisis, um, the idea that there would be any limitations on the literal U.S. bombs or bombs bought with U.S. funding should not be used to have a civilian-to-target ratio. Of something like 20 to 1 is being pushed back uh, on by people who are supposed to be, to your point, conservative vanguards in our Congress. And I do want to say, point to Thomas Massey for sure. Rashida Tlaib, obviously, has been very principled throughout all of this as the only Palestinian member of Congress. But for Massey to just actually vote no on this bill, knowing the kind of backlash that Congress members get from APAC for this kind of behavior. APAC has already committed to a $100 million spend against the members of the squad for exactly this kind of behavior. To be willing to stick your neck out and take this kind of a stand, I think, is very principled.
0: Yeah, uh, Rand Paul has in the past um, filibustered um, Iron Dome funding, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the same reasons. Um, you know, uh, uh, people like conservative commentators who are very popular and very successful, like Tucker Carlson and Candace Owens and others, have, you know, given voice to this strain of the conservative movement that argues for a less interventionist foreign policy and wants to spend American dollars in America and wants to, you know, rethink what our commitments abroad are. Are we are we making ourselves safer by just giving tons of money to foreign regimes that we exercise no control over whatsoever. I think it's true of Israel. I think it's true of Ukraine. I think it's true of a lot of our spending in the past. Um, But as I said earlier, there's there's nothing conservative about that, that we should just— Fund. I mean, this is a, this is a government program. This yeah. is another government's program. It's their defense that we're just unthinkingly pouring more money into. Conservatives and and these many of these conservative leaders, like Mitch McConnell, would I think ostensibly recognize in other circumstances that. We want. We want more. Um, uh, we we want to exercise more control over the FBI now. The IRS, the the um, uh, agency, government agencies that are that are violating Americans' um, uh, free speech and, and civil liberties mm-hmm. issues. We, what the people want is. is they don't want more oversight on the people from these agencies. They want more ag- oversight over the agencies. Mm-hmm. And these are these are foreign governments, the ones we have the least oversight over. Uh,
1: absolutely. Now it's the, the Leahy Law, L-E-A-H-Y, that bans U.S. government from giving aid to foreign military units that are committing human rights ab- abuses. And so far, twenty-five members of Congress have supported simply applying existing law to the circumstances in Israel. Uh, in the Senate, it's just Bernie Sanders, Chris Murphy, uh, Chris Van Hollen, Elizabeth Warren, and John. only five, only five members in the Senate. It's obviously 20 um, people in the House. I won't list them all. But the the idea that it's a controversial principle to simply apply existing law to to Israel um, is really incredible. And it's worth noting that although um, some people were hopeful when um, uh, Joe Biden made that statement about... Uh, putting conditions on aid, being a worthwhile thought, his people walked it back uh, right after that. So uh, to the extent that people thought there might be an opening there, that he might be willing to explicitly support that principle, his uh, uh, spokespeople uh, immediately went on the news and said, oh, he just thought it was an interesting thought, but it isn't actually gonna, uh, it's not actually going to manifest any kind of policy change.
0: Yeah. It, it is frustrating when we, uh, other governments treat us like we're, like we're schmucks, like they can get whatever they want out of us, Without any, they don't have to do any wiggle room. I mean, this was true of, somewhat true of the Saudi situation where they, you know, they chop up a a journalist. And we're supposed to overlook that because they're going to give us oil and they're going to, you know, solve our economic woes in our time of need. Then they don't even do that. Why are we we playing footsie with them then?
1: Well, the irony was that Joe (laughs) Biden said he was going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah up until he was facing domestic problems in the wake of COVID and having, um, you know, uh, not being able to access enough oil and the gas prices being high, that hurt him politically at home. So he went and started groveling, frankly, to Saudi Arabia. The irony is that now he's similarly facing enormous backlash domestically, but has not decided to change his attitude to Israel to save his own hide. It's interesting to see the parallels there and how he's behaving differently in that circumstance. And it it just raises some interesting questions about why it is that, given the diminishing geopolitical significance of Israel in terms of United States' foreign policy interests, why it is that he's willing to sacrifice so much, the party's willing to sacrifice so much. On principle.
0: Hmm. Well, we will continue to follow that, and we'll have more rising right after this. GOP presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy recently made an appearance on Glenn Greenwald's system update where he continued to hit rival Nikki Haley about what he views as blatant corruption over her ties to the military-industrial complex. Let's watch.
4: You have somebody who claims to be an accountant, never obtained a CPA. But anyway, is in debt, drowning in debt at the time she leaves the U.N. And then in a few short years, becomes a military contractor whose business address is her home address, which is, you know, interesting. Clients as yet undisclosed gives secretive speeches, including to foreign actors and domestic actors alike. Joins the board of Boeing, a company for whom she has done special favors her entire career as governor of South Carolina. And what do you know? And a few things later, she's collecting corporate stock options during this presidential campaign. As far as I know, unprecedented for somebody who's running for U.S. president literally while on the campaign. Now emerges a multimillionaire. That's corrupt. There's there's no other word for it.
1: Ramaswamy also criticized Haley's seeming obsession with funding Israel, hitting her for her hawkish nature and adding he opposed President Biden's request for $14 billion more in Israeli aid. I'm against
4: that funding request. And I, and I have been clear about this, the $61 billion to Ukraine, the 14 to 16 depending on the spending request for this specific war in Israel. I've made the case, actually, Glenn, that I don't think that's in the U.S. interest and I don't think it's in Israel's interest. But either way, my rule of thumb across the board is any new elective foreign aid, we shouldn't be giving it as a country to anybody whose national debt per capita per person is less than the United States. Now, I also go further and say that this is also consistent with Israel's own founding vision. David Ben-Gurion, the founder of Israel, famously said effectively in his own way, We don't want to depend on the fleeting sympathies of America or the U.N. or the West or anybody else. Israel has an absolute right to its own national self-defense. And I stand by that. But I stand by that by saying that we're best off, and I believe Israel's best off, when we're not intervening.
1: Ramaswamy then pivoted to condemn the calls for censorship over disagreements on the Israel-Palestine conflict.
4: I don't care if you agree with me or not. You have the right to say it. And I believe much of our Republican primary voter base cares about that deeply. But it's going to take somebody who's willing to explain that to them, which I think the other candidates are not. And I am because, you know what, if the government can decide what speech can and cannot be expressed, there's no point in going through the rest of the motions. We're done as a country.
0: So Ram Swamy hitting there on a lot of themes that... <clears throat> I think have have uh, have value and are correct and you know represent the aspect of the conservative movement that he speaks for. I think a lot of younger um, conservatives who you know, similarly are very worried about being canceled or being censored or being fired or. Uh, expelled or whatever it might be for holding provocative views, um, appreciate that that's the reason we don't want to empower a new cancel culture-type thing, even if it's right-wing people doing it to pro-Palestinian voices or whatever it is. That's a difference that Vivek has uh, compared to— Haley and DeSantis everybody else on the debate stage um, that emerged um, and I then I was interested to hear um, His views on I mean he said I think a lot of different things on the whole I was gonna issue say Rob because we
1: talked to him right here right on the, on the show, the show We interviewed and I them. asked him very pointedly about how his his relationship financially with Israel as as a president of the United States of America how he would change that relationship and he committed to continuing the $3.8 billion of aid through basically the duration of his presidency. So, I understand that he's saying, I don't think that we should give this additional aid in this moment, but the this is a, a part and parcel of an ongoing problem. So, what you're saying, it seems in this clip, is that you agree that Israel— has a a better uh, debt-to-person ratio than the United States of America. It's one of the most affluent countries in the world. And yet, America should continue to make Israel its largest recipient of aid, because that's the status quo. And are you actually an independent actor the way that you are presenting yourself as being, if you're unwilling to break with the establishment status quo's relationship of aid? To Israel
0: right I mean his position I agree with you but his position is we made this commitment this funding commitment and we should honor that Commitment and then it should be revisited and we should not vote to give them this additional money he I would said, just cut off the aid if it were me, but this is a this yeah. is a better Position or this is closer to my position than any of the other Republican Sure, but
1: remember candidates. he also said in that interview that he would Certainly. provide a political iron dome um, to protect Israel uh, Against the world. And we talked, we pushed him a little bit. What does that exactly mean? And people should go back and listen to the interview itself. I don't mean to mischaracterize him. You can obviously hear his own words for yourself right here uh, on Rising. But part of the criticism that Israel is getting right now is that the entire international apparatus, led by the United States of America with their veto uh, power at the UN, has prevented it from having to take responsibility for its violations of international law. We have blocked any number of moves uh, for the UN to um, uh, press uh, for a ceasefire and things like that. So what does it mean? I understand that you, very specifically on this one narrow funding point, are saying Uh, America first, yada yada. But is it America first to offer Israel protection, as it commits human rights violations on Gaza, that are ultimately going to lead to more radicalism, more terrorism? I don't know—I don't have to allude again to the fact that the Osama bin Laden letter explaining why 9-11 happened what pointed specifically to the treatment of Palestinians as a cause. Is that really America first? And does he have a vision of America first that's not exclusively financial?
0: Well, I mean, right. I mean, there's—so uh, I, I, there's not, I think, it, it, in the conservative side of things, on the right side of things, I don't know that there is a lot of necessary—necessarily agreement with—you know, without co-signing or endorsing everything Israel does, I don't know that the conservative movement is taking the position or people within it that Israel is— this aggressive human rights violator that should be sanctioned by the UN. That's not really what—that's I, I, what appeals to left-wing people. I don't think that's where conservatives are or the what they want to do. the majority of
1: Americans. Do. It's worth noting. The majority of Americans support a ceasefire. You,
0: you said that Israel is you know, serially violating international human rights laws. I don't think that conservatives see Israel's— Conduct as again without endorsing everything they're doing or thinking we should fund it We don't think they should we should fund it. We don't think Israel's actions are necessarily you like uniquely bad in all the world or worthy of sanction In fact conservatives thing? don't really want in the, they don't want the U.N. to exist. They but don't want to be involved But to be clear, it's to not, to be the argument is not that Israel
1: it. is uniquely bad. It's that we are uniquely funding Israel to right. do the well, bad that, things.
0: That we want to cancel. That we want to revisit. So it, it is the funding. But it's not. we don't want some international body to, like, sanction Israel or right, something but, like that. Right, uh,
1: but my, my only point, and you don't have to agree with it, is sure. that the president's job with foreign policy is also to keep Americans safe. People understand that as they kind of invade against... Um, Immigration policies that they don't like. They talk about terrorism, Americans being threatened by forces overseas. Some conservatives right now are talking about somehow Hamas coming through the southern border. If those are your concerns, you're going to continue to endorse policies that quite obviously are leading to an increasingly radicalized population. That that's my only point there. Before we wrap, I did want to ask you about the first part of this, where he takes these shots at Nikki Haley uh, for being uniquely captured, earning money in an untoward way, etc. I, I my thought was I don't know if I were Vivek Ramaswamy and I had made my money and the ways that he has, which has come under a great deal of scrutiny, what is being characterized as a kind of a pump and dump scheme, getting his mom to basically, who's a, a, a physician, a geriatric physician, to hype up an Alzheimer drug and then sell it at a, as a profit when it didn't actually have any um, uh, therapeutic value, I don't know that I would be wanting to go down that road.
0: I mean, that's the accusation. I don't, I don't know enough, frankly, about the details of the Ramaswamy situation or, frankly, of Nikki Haley's I financial don't care if she's a situation. CPA or not. Well, it's I'm criticize I'm going to criticize what her policies right. are because I don't agree with them. I, I does she have these policies because she very narrowly or directly financially benefits? I don't know. I think they're, you know, not good, they're, they're not my conservative policies. this is neoconservatism, I want to move things in in the more non-interventionist or populist direction, or libertarian direction on foreign policy. That's why I oppose her. I don't know that she's doing it for personal gain, and I'm always, right, reluctant to make that smear, because then they can turn it on you, well, how did you make the yeah. money? So
1: but We're not all school teachers here <laughs> in this crowd. All right, stick around, we're rising for you after this. Censorship files? According to new reporting from Public, a whistleblower has come forward with explosive documents describing activities of an anti-disinformation group called the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, offering a glimpse into the birth of anti-disinformation, or what others have called the censorship industrial complex.
0: Mm. Joining us now to discuss is journalist at Public and CBR Chair in Politics, Censorship and Free Speech at the University of Austin, Michael Schellenberger. Michael, welcome. So great to have you in studio, (laughs) in person. It's great to be here. Well, we're so happy to have you here to discuss uh, your really terrific and important reporting on the origins of this anti-disinformation uh, movement. This this group of intelligence officials and bureaucrats and social media moderators and so-called experts in various places who came together, started these organizations that we're now that we're grappling with and that we discuss on the show a lot. How they've threatened free speech. So, so tell us, um, you know, what you've learned and what you
5: expose in this piece. Sure. Well- well, this is... As you mentioned, it's the the CTIL files. This is an organization that started really in 2019, but then started getting up and running in 2020. We only know about this because a very patriotic whistleblower delivered a huge tranche of new files to us. And it's impressive because it's a really complete set of documents, so you can see exactly what they were doing. But what's so terrifying about this case is that the people that were running it were military contractors, including working for the U.S. Navy at the time, One of them was British. One of them was American. There were many other people involved. There were people involved from Microsoft. There was a so-called former Israeli intelligence person who was involved. So you really start to see—because, of course, you always had people that had been in the CIA or had been in intelligence agencies sort of involved in this, but then they had said, well, we're no longer doing that or we're associated with an academic institution. Here you really see a much more direct connection. And I think you see two parts of the censorship industrial complex in the CTIL files that are really important. The first is the use of supposedly non-governmental organizations— as the people to go and demand the censorship. That shows an awareness that they know that the government can't be demanding censorship uh, by social media platforms, an awareness that the First Amendment prohibits that. Um, and then the second part of it that I think was so important in this case is they said, these people are all volunteers, you know, that, this is, that these are folks that, even if they might be working for the government, and we have Slack messaging channels with people from the Department of Homeland Security in the channel with people from Facebook and people from CTIL, So this is uh, just it really reveals, I think, what was happening to combine these forces and to sort of dress it up as though it was kind of an act, a form of activism, a form of advocacy, grassroots advocacy rather than something that was clearly coming out of the intelligence and military communities.
1: You write in your piece that the whistleblower alleged alleged, that a leader of the CTI League, a former British intelligence analyst, was in the room at the Obama White House in 2017 when she received the instructions to create a counter-disinformation project to stop a repeat of 2016. Is this really all still about Russiagate? And when you talk about it being an activist movement, is it really about kind of liberal Democrats trying to continue to push the narrative, or they sincerely believe the narrative, that but for Russian interference in 2016, Donald Trump would not have won.
5: That sure is, that is sure really what it looks like. And it's not just in that instance, Where there's all sorts of other evidence when you see them talking internally, or even in some of the podcasts that they give, that the big motivations were Brexit and then the election of Trump in 2016. And I should say, you know, I've been involved in the left-wing causes for like 30 years, and I have never seen, I mean, in my work, i mean, never seen anything so systematic. I mean, mostly progressive causes and activist causes are pretty disorganized. They're they're full of people that are not professionals. This was incredibly professional. This was incredibly disciplined. They were drawing on existing cybersecurity methods, but then they were extending them. So they talked about physical security, then they talked about cybersecurity, and then they added this third category called cognitive security, which is basically trying to control the information environment and control how people think, Mm. is very sophisticated. I mean, they're really using methods that come out of things like cultural anthropology. They talk about how we're not just trying to stomp out wrong facts. In fact, they say often true facts are what is behind a lot of mis- and disinformation. They say we're trying to stop these things before they become whole narratives, before they can affect people's beliefs. So you know, on the one hand, yes, it seems like there's a lot of kind of Trump derangement syndrome, but what's so striking about it is that these are really sophisticated people. And there's a sense in which they had been practicing these strategies in other countries before they started to turn them inward on our domestic mm. population. And, and they, they clearly have
0: a very, um, they think highly of themselves. Uh, they called themselves with the Hogwarts School of Misinformation. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that, uh, you know, read another book, and I'm just as guilty of that yeah. as anyone else. Yeah. Uh, it does yeah you you hit on something so important there because when people hear you know anti disinformation anti misinformation they, they might naively think okay well these are just people trying to root out you know tr- tr- false facts that are out there and and trying to have some kind of policing of that or some kind of fact checking apparatus but as you point out it's going so beyond that to trying to combat things that actually might be true yeah. but are not do do not advantage what this group of people's political philosophy is, or Do not or is not good for Hillary Clinton Democrats. That's
5: right. And there's sort of two big cases here. I mean, the first is on—and we saw this already with the Facebook files—White House demanding censorship of information that could lead to people being hesitant to take the vaccine. Right. So that resulted in—and Facebook said, we're censoring often true stories of vaccine side effects to avoid that vaccine hesitancy. So they're censoring accurate information to avoid a behavior they don't want. Um, and then of course the second one, or maybe not of course, but certainly comes out very strongly here is anything that delegitimizes the system. So they they, want, they say very specifically, we wanna really defend the system. Um, this is very inappropriate, you know, to be to be trying to manipulate people's minds in these ways. The first amendment is, is sacrosanct, it's paramount. I think the other significant thing, there's so much detail here. People should go read the whole piece. It's a long piece. But, you know, it was that this was blessed by the Department of Homeland Security's CISA, the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency. They blessed the CTIL when it started. And I think this is—the other key part of it is that it's like it's—they were hiding the censorship initiative in a supposedly cybersecurity initiative. So they sort of hid it inside the IT guys. So you're supposedly trying to protect your systems from hackers, but now you're in the job of censoring people. And that's, I think, one of the craziest and most disturbing parts of it.
1: So help us understand the mechanism by which these non-government actors are able to influence the censorship policies of social media companies.
5: Yes. Well, this is okay. So we saw this also with the Twitter files. So on the one hand, they're sort of, and this was the Hogwarts School. What they're trying, to what the leaders of this were trying to do, is to create some sense of camaraderie. We're the heroes. They often refer to themselves as the janitors out there cleaning up the internet, by which they mean censoring mm. people. Um, there's a, so they're trying to get people excited about it. They're trying to recruit people to do this. Um, and then, and then often what they're trying to do is they're going to the platforms and saying this person's post violates your terms of service. So on the one hand, they're saying, hey, we're just trying to help them enforce their own. And rules. But then on the other side, they're trying to expand or change the terms of service to be more expansive so they can increase the amount of censorship. And in this case, as I mentioned before, I mean, these are people that actually were working on government contractors. One of the new entities—there's so many of them now, there's literally over a hundred of them—but it's called Softworks, and it's an organization that's designed to do technology transfer from the Air Force to the civilian sector. And that's part of what seems to be happening here, is they were trying to move these censorship tools. Out of the DOD and intelligence communities into uh, civil society, and, and and eventually we saw it into places like Stanford Internet Observatory. If I could
1: ask a follow-up on that, though, so many people would think in the pre-Elon era there were a lot of. Um you know, I would say left-leaning people who would say things like, these are the terms of service and they're being disproportionately applied to one group or another. They'd say, this hate speech is being allowed, but someone who said, oh, I'm going to drink white tears uh, gets banned. And they would say, well, what's what's the consistency here? And so there were these efforts to at least, whatever the terms of service were, get them evenly applied, regardless of one's political orientation, which I think is a fair enough pursuit. So when you say that they're not just doing that, but they're trying to change the terms of service in a politically advantageous way. Can you give us an example of that?
5: Well, the two uh, examples—the two Twitter files I did, we saw this happening. The first was the deplatforming of Trump. So I um, did—I think Barry and and Matt did January 6th and 8th, I did January 7th, which was when a lot of the decisions were being made. They came back and looked at at Trump's tweets, and they were like, they don't violate our terms of service, so Mm -hmm. we can't—they had to make some—they had to—they had to change their own rules in order to deplatform Trump, and the second one was on the Hunter Biden laptop. They re- they came to the conclusion internally at Twitter that the New York Post tweets and story had not violated their terms of service, that that it was okay and it should not have been censored, and yet they found a justification to censor it anyway. You know the social media companies, <clears throat> excuse me, have become so.
0: Uh, you, you obviously Twitter is under new leadership, X now. Even Mark Zuckerberg has talked in podcasts about being really uncomfortable with some of the COVID-related moderation decisions that were made, yeah. obviously the Hunter Biden laptop story. We've seen in some of the dis- disclosures you've done and other people have done that even as they were happening, a lot of the moderators at these companies were frustrated, frankly, mm-hmm. with the constant um, interaction that eventually was becoming interference from these the cybersecurity anti-misinformation people. Yeah. The moderators disagreeing with their conclusions in some place, fighting them, saying, actually, this list of Russian bots you just gave us are real people, right. and we're not going to do it. We don't mm-hmm. want to do anything about it. But um, feeling so much pressure to act because yes. the political uh, people, the, the so many senators and others, were were marching in lockstep with the anti-misinformation people to threaten uh, political consequences, changes to the regulatory framework, that sort of thing. Um, where are we now in, in terms of is there enough frustration internally? Obviously, X is under totally different leadership. Is it true at Facebook too that if something like COVID happened again, or something like the Hunter Biden laptop happened again, would they tell these people to take a hike because they're so fed up with them and they've been th- these people have been exposed finally?
5: I mean, we remain in this moment where there's just it's just chaos. Yeah. I mean, and so I mean, look, the response from Mark Zuckerberg to getting beat up and he had a big advertiser boycott was basically just to throttle news on on Facebook and take a this, we've noticed <laughs> yeah and to yeah. take the financial hit. Same here. Yeah. Um, obviously, X uh, has news leadership and uh, it is more open and there's still things going on that are, you know, like particularly from other countries where you're seeing censorship demands. My view remains that adult users, we should control our own legal content. That should be a condition of having Section 230. I hope the Supreme Court next year, it will hear Missouri versus Biden. That's the big censorship case. I hope that that's what they require. If not, then we need at least a lot more transparency so that if you're a government official demanding censorship by a social media platform, which in my view violates the First Amendment, but if the court decides that it's okay, they should have to report it right away. That would be very easy to do. If I'm asking Facebook or or Twitter to take something down, just just put it out there publicly that that's what's happening. I think that's important. And then just to have overall transparency about what those algorithms, what those filters are— I think ultimately the right solution is for user control of our own content moderation. I
1: think that transparency point is a really big one and not just for uh, US government actors, but for foreign actors as well. I mean, I think a lot of the criticism that Elon Musk has gotten since he's taken stewardship of Twitter is that there was the incident with Modi where he seemed to concede to those censorship demands from India and now more recently. Just a week or so ago, he was saying things that were I would say, pro-Palestine or pro-Israel, but kind of common-sense statements uh, about how, if you keep bombing Gaza, you're going to create more militants, because they're going to be frustrated that Israel just killed their families. He takes this trip to Israel and has had a real change of tune and is now talking about how we have to censor from the river to the sea, not have a debate about that phrase, but censor it, ban it on uh, Twitter, and also the, the term decolonization, if it's being applied to Israel. So, I mean, what is there to be done with respect not to—not just to our own national rights uh, to the First Amendment, but these kind of um, external to America relationships that someone like Elon Musk increasingly is forming with global leaders.
5: That's right. And I think that you you mentioned also also in Turkey, where we saw uh, the government demanding censorship. This had happened before Elon. Elon took over. He continued with that same path, which, you know, is debatable. But he did uh, make transparent what the requests were and what the tra- what the what the censorship was. So in in without having user control, transparency is a second best route here. I agree with you. I would not have made the decision to uh, censor from the river to the sea. Um, I mean, I I think m- we need to remind ourselves that under the Supreme Court rulings. Only immediate incitement to violence is prohibited. I mean, right. really immediate. Right. We remember famously the Supreme Court allowed the neo-Nazis to march through a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors. That was in a time where people were apparently a lot more resilient to hateful speech, but hate speech is legal speech. And what is hateful is obviously in the mind of the beholder. So these are things I think we just need to remind ourselves culturally and in the conversation and toughen up a little bit to allow more of this. Because like Glenn Greenwald says, yeah. If you're not defending the free speech rights of people whose speech you really hate and loathe, then your commitment to free speech means nothing.
0: And on social media, you you can and should be able to have the tools to just turn that stuff off if you don't want to see it. And that's absolutely fine. And that would make everyone so much less (laughs) insane if you just had (laughs) control over the experience you were having on social media. Uh, Well, Michael, thank you so much for being here. It's really our pleasure. More Rising right after this. In conversation with Tucker Carlson, Representative Tim Burchett said he will be speaking directly with the new Speaker of the House about the UAP Disclosure Act either today or tomorrow. So where is this legislation going? I mean, will there be disclosure short term? Will these two committee chairmen, the Speaker of the House, Mitch
6: McConnell, will they shut it down?
3: Well, the Senate passed it, um, the amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, but it hasn't been signed into law yet. The House is in negotiations. From what I understand over this amendment, I'll be talking to the speaker today or tomorrow about this amendment and just telling him how important it is to this community and and uh, transparency. That, that's really all I want is transparency where we're we're spending all this money on something and where is it going and why do they not trust the American public? Those are the things that people need to ask. You can, you know, as I said at the at the hearing, I said, we're not going to bring in a UFO. We're not going to bring in little green men. But what we want is transparency. And, and unfortunately, we don't have much of that in the United States Congress because they'll, oh, look, there's another shiny object over here. They'll misdirect us over here. They'll misdirect us over there. But I believe this community is very, very in tune to what's going on and the cover up that's been going on.
1: Yeah. Florida Congresswoman Anna Polina Luna wrote on X, My office is now putting together a bipartisan press conference on the pushback we are getting regarding UAPs. We will announce dates. This will be open to the public. More to come. Journalist Ross Colvart recently revealed that the United States has recovered extensive non human craft while appearing on News Nation.
2: The Office of Global Access is the office, I'm told, where this is all happening. You've got to have an office to coordinate the retrieval of these craft, and I I know a lot of people out there still think this is all science fiction, but uh, since we did the Grush interview a few months ago, I've just got more solid with intelligence sources who are telling me that the entire operation is and has long been run out of the CIA and the OGA, the Office of Global Access, is where it's happening, The only um, issue that I take issue with in the uh, Daily Mail report is that it's not just nine craft. I'm told that the United States is in possession of far more than nine craft, not all of them intact. And whilst this might all sound incredible, uh, what I can also reveal is that, yes, there are JSOC operators, Special Operations Command operators, mainly recruited from the, um, the US Air Force Special Forces, who are involved in these retrieval teams, and uh, it's a very active and ongoing operation.
1: If someone doesn't take a Polaroid camera into one of those rooms, <laughs> and get some no. photographic so,
0: I'm getting so of something sick of soon. this. Just show it to us. I need to see it.
1: You know, Robbie. Or I'm
0: not gonna believe it.
1: I am alien philic. do you know what I'm saying? I'm a very pro-alien yeah. kind of girl. Yeah. I would lo- like, but I I cannot, there's a there's a credibility issue here that's emerging the more and more these stories are about how I can tell you this. There's now, we've narrowed down to a series of like two or three interlocutors who are constantly the ones that are being told that to someone else that they can't reveal are telling them something that they can tell us. We had, what was it, um, shortly before there was supposed to be uh, two or three people that were going to be a part of that hearing that ended up not happening. And the, the question was, OK, well, if they, they cancel the hearing, if, they, if you can't participate in the hearing, you can still talk to the public. You're obviously, you were on the government's list for you were going to appear in this. Like People know who you are at this point. Why are we still doing this cloak and daggers? And I still feel like we're at that point, wherever we were in like yeah. midsummer, when it was all anticipatory.
0: Here's something kind of weird, though. So I just Googled while we were listening to this, the yeah. Office of Global Access. Mm-hmm. Um, Which Ross Coulthard claims is coordinating the alien stuff Mm -hmm. and I got a this is very weird There's the result I get look it says it looks like the results below are changing quickly if this topic is new It can sometimes take time for reliable sources to publish information check the source Are they trusted on this topic come back later other sources might have more information? I've never gotten this notification before they're like like Google's annoyed that I searched this topic
1: uh, okay,
0: I'm just saying. Uh, OK, This is a big alien I, trying I, to block look, trying to thwart so, our quest for the truth.: What
1: was interesting about, isn't this, that kind of weird? Is it? I, I, don't know. I, I honestly I've never don't, gotten this. I honestly before. don't know. Look. What was interesting about the Tucker Carlson um, segment is that he was pretty definitive on his belief that the government has uh, alien spaceships. Yeah.
0: Look, I want it all disclosed. I want transparency. I want what Tim Burchett is trying to accomplish. I, I wish him all the good fortune in the world in succeeding at that. I think it should all be disclosed so we can judge for ourselves. I am very sick, like you are, of hearing there's a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who saw the craft with the dead aliens in it. I want that guy to tell me where they are. I want him to take me there right now. We can un ourselves. We can follow him to the desert or to the secret facility so I can see them. We'll take pictures. Like, let's do that. Let's do that right now. Yeah, I mean, and if we can't do that, stop talking about it.
1: There's also this, th- it is interesting that apparently con- the Congress members who are trying to push for more transparency are getting pushback. And there is this argument that says, well, if the investigation is being stonewalled, that is, Circumstantial evidence that they are trying to hide something now the subsequent question is are they trying to hide evidence of the existence of aliens alien Spacecrafts alien bodies. We saw that little figurine that they had dug up in Mexico that was supposed to be an alien a couple months ago or is it just a al- evidence of Technology, whether foreign or domestic, that is not. I
0: fully believe the government would try to hide the existence of a ham sandwich. So <laughs> it it could be nothing. It could be technology. That's very do plausible. you really believe that? Yeah, they're knee-jerk. They love secrecy for they love pointless bureaucratic secrecy. They like redacting documents. They like not giving you the information you need. It's a sick little power trip for them. Uh, I I fully believe they would keep secret absolutely nothing.
1: Okay, well then. I'll, like like do if do, there was nothing, they then, would keep then that two secret. Two of the three scenarios are that there's nothing.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's plausible. Um, we talked about uh, you were out and Amisha was here, and we talked about some alien-related stuff. And she betrayed a self-admitted a lack of interest in the subject. <laughs> and she said, "These are her words, not mine." She said, "This is a thing among black people and black people on social media that there are more important things than this topic." That's what she claimed.
1: That black people don't care about aliens. Yes. Well, I don't want to out any specific member of my family. Uh-huh. But I will say that there was a picnic. My great grandmother lived on the end of a cul-de-sac mm-hmm. next to a park mm-hmm. in Cleveland. And it is known in the family. This is a no, my mom's going to kill me. <laughs> it is known something in the family. We're they were all together at a family event and the picnic in the 1970s. Now, P- UFO people know that 1970s in Ohio was where there was a lot of sightings. So it could not, it might not have been an alien, but a lot of people were saying something was going on in the skies in Ohio in the 1970s, where they were all having frivolity, eating food, whatever. And they turned, and they all tell the same, same story about seeing at the end of the park, a orange spherical orb slowly move and descend hover, they all went quiet for like a minute and then it went away. And I'm like, did you guys discuss it? My mom's like, nobody talked about it. We just were like, we all saw it and then we just moved on from it. So I don't know about black people en masse.
0: I don't know if that contradicts or confirms what <laughs> uh, what Amisha was saying.
1: <laughs> they didn't care, they had bigger problems. <laughs> yeah, they definitely had bigger problems. But yeah, I, I don't you know, and I also think that as a Trekkie a, a lot of black people are disproportionately entered Star Trek because it was the, one of the more Diverse uh, shows on TV in the 1960s, it was like the only show that had black people on it where we weren't playing maids and housekeepers Um, So yeah, I do think there's black people love sci-fi. I think black people love space I don't know uh, Amisha's life, but also uh, also black people aren't a monolith.
0: Yeah, no for sure
1: Well, I wasn't making that claim.
0: I was just (laughs) relaying it to you and giving you the opportunity to weigh in more rising right after this
1: Elon Musk seems to be diving back into conspiracy theories. He recently tweeted uh, and since deleted a meme that it was at least a little suspicious uh, that an expert that debunked the Pizzagate conspiracy theory had gone to jail for child porn. Another post, Musk linked to an AP article about an ABC News journalist who pleaded guilty to federal child pornography charges, though there was seemingly no connection between that journalist and Pizzagate.
0: Twitter users were quick to bring up Musk's own connections to dubious characters. One user posted a side-by-side with Musk tweet and a picture of Musk with Jelaine Maxwell. Maxwell, of course, was the right-hand man of Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, I don't know why Elon Musk is really interested in Pizzagate uh, these days. It,
1: um, it's it's particularly strange one because the mean doesn't make sense. There's no conne- There's there's no connection between right. the the person. I guess, so child, some journalist
0: had set wrote an article saying Pizzagate was made up, and later that person is I, the ac- accusation. I'm not sure who this person is, but was convicted of. Sexual misconduct or underage sexual misconduct. I, I don't no, know. No, there's
1: no connection between the journalist and Pizzagate. I don't. I don't think that journalist even wrote know. about Pizzagate. I just I think it's a random the, journalist who happens yeah. to uh, be have child pornography and convicted of child pornography. And then also over here, there's a thing called Pizzagate. So people are obviously concerned about it for one because you know conspiracy around pizza gate led someone to taking a gun and shooting within the uh, pizza the restaurant where pizza gate was supposed to have happened there is already evidence of theory, theorizing on this point leading to actual violence and threats so one might as the largest user on twitter and someone who is very influential at least be very careful when making these kinds of statements Yeah, not be patently inaccurate when making these kinds of statements? Yeah,
0: I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, there's no accuracy to those statements. Um, Also, people, I, I don't know, the right is, has gotten very into this whole child sex trafficking narrative that, frankly, is a plot to give law enforcement more power to surveil us and should be treated very skeptically, in my view. Of course, there are, some victims of sexual crimes out there. Um, a lot of crimes against children in general and sexual crimes are committed by family members. Um, the whole, like, your child being kidnapped off the street by a stranger, virtual, which happens in TVs and movies, virtually never happens in real life. It's, the, it's like one of the rarest categories of crime there is. All kids that are taken, virtually all of them, are in some kind of custody dispute or they're runaways. Um, Some of the runaways, yes, enter uh, prostitution, and it's really bad, and we should—you know, that's illegal, and they can arrest the—if they're falling into bad situations with people who are pressuring them into it, they should absolutely—those people can face jail. There's not—but this—some people have this idea that children are just grabbed left and right, and we need to to put vastly more law enforcement resources toward this project that will ultimately be about— Growing the government to do more surveillance and censorship. I mean, it, look, it's very bad. Why a lot of libertarian sure. Republican members of Congress voted against FOSTA-SESTA and all those national mm-hmm. bills that were that you know ostensibly aimed at combating these things? Sure,
1: but there also seems to be a specifically, I will say, maybe you can speak to this. Conservative energy around. Child sex trafficking, you know, child exploitation specifically, that you see come out in the hype around movies like Sound of Freedom, right? Mm-hmm. There's, in an, Pizzagate, this idea that we are moral and, um, you know, religious and conservative socially here on the right. Uh, they're lascivious and, and perverted on the left. And that's part of why you should not join their political um, operation. Or movement at the same time that you had the the Sound of Freedom movie um, guy, the guy who was inspired mm-hmm. the movie, ended up getting sued by five women for sexual assault. You had one of the funders of the movie that you saw in the credits himself um, being arrested for child kidnapping. Irony of all ironies, and you get repeatedly and I, like people, there's pedophiles in every echelon of society, regrettably. Like I don't think this is a political issue, but there does seem to be an effort to make, to connect the Democratic Party with child sex trafficking, even at, at, at the same time as we see who affiliated with Jeffrey Epstein and Jillian Ma- uh, Maxwell. Well, every political figure on exactly. the Exactly. Yeah, she's with mean... Donald Trump. She's with Hillary Clinton. Like, it's it's everywhere. So why? Yeah. what is with this effort to try to make it like, oh, the libs are pedophiles. The libs are problems for substantive reasons that I would agree with. Yeah. But what is this idea of trying to politicize something like pedophilia?
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm ultimately warning against it because I, I think the government is going to use this power for ill which is why i'm pre- and we and we should be true you know we should be truthful and accurate about the reality of crime because we can't Prevent, again, we want to protect ch- children from sexual misconduct. It does exist; it absolutely happens, um, but it, it's not typically happening under the circumstances that a lot of these people are describing. And like that's these solutions are not going to be tailored to um, you know to to tackling this sort of thing. In fact, on this category of crime, so I saw this story um, being covered in a lot of places. That this top Pentagon official, Stephen Havanick, I believe is his mm-hmm. name, uh, who was arrested. And like you know, the headlines are all arrested for in you know, a sex trafficking sting. Um, I think we have some video footage of uh, of this sting. Can we play that?
3: the way to county sheriff's office released their motel video of Stephen hovenick and an undercover officer during a human trafficking sting november 15th during his arrest he claimed that he was at the hotel to get a massage deputies say his interaction with the undercover officer raises questions about that claim so what's up sleep, by the way hey
0: nice place? to meet you, so, how are you? Beautiful. Thank
3: Thank
6: you. you.
4: I'm so I'm
3: not here. <laughs> uh, Hovenick has been identified as the chief of staff for all military schools in the U.S. and oversees the education of thousands of military dependent children. He's 64 years old and lives in Sharpsburg, according to his arrest report. So
1: we will have uh, more, but I'm you now, i just that's, that's
5: it. Okay. Uh-huh.
0: So the, the person in that video that he's meeting with that's an adult woman. It's actually an undercover police officer, and they're arresting him. They're saying it's so, so no underage person was in danger. No person was in danger at all because there was the only person there was actually an undercover police officer. And again, this is maybe just my libertarianism emerging. Who cares if if a if a if a dude pays for a massage with a woman who who is. Consenting adult. A massage, like, Robbie. This is not. I don't care. Like this is <laughs> what saying, law. Enfor- it what it well, is. You, you, you agree with yeah, me. no, I don't think uh, I don't law think enforcement is going to waste illegal. their time on this. This stuff. There was a there was a carjacking in front of my office yesterday. There was a, 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 a actually the person. This happened right outside my office yesterday. We like, watched it happen from the windows. Somebody, um, the guy whose car it was, wrestled the guy to the ground and yeah. held him there, and it's and dangerous. got and got he got the the perpetrator pepper sprayed him and had a weapon and he held him down until the police arrived um, so like, like maybe there are that. actual things police can be dealing with instead of like harassing people in this kind of circumstance I, I I know other people feel differently I think this should be legal I don't care about this this isn't a threat to anyone it's not a threat to children yeah it's the, the
1: linking it's the same the guy's job responsibility includes overseeing children like yeah. that has anything to do with oh, him pull out the paying for sex with an adult woman is bizarre yeah and framing it I don't quite understand the the, char- the, the sex trafficking in lieu of a prostitution charge, yes. it does make it feel like someone's doing something somehow more insidious than the world's oldest profession, like doing something against the woman's will as opposed to something that just happens to be against the yeah. law because that's what we've decided in this country.
0: Yeah, but tell us what you think. Uh, hotly debated subject. We'll have more rising right after this.
1: A few weeks ago we discussed a new book Contra Oligarchs by author Seamus Brunner on Microsoft bil- billionaire Bill Gates and how his dedication to pushing green technology might not be as altruistic as he was letting on. Brunner argued that Gates stood to gain financially by eliminating competition from non-green sources and forcing people to buy more environmentally friendly companies he had invested in.
0: But according to Brunner Gates isn't the only one who's looking to profit from the American people's generosity. Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, printing- boogeyman George Soros also play into a plot to dominate your life. Here now to dive further into this story is the author of Control of Seamus Bruner. Seamus, so great to have you with us. Robbie, Brianna, it's so good to see you. So, tell us more about your thesis here. Obviously, these are uh, wealthy figures um, who support various policies, and we've criticized some of those policies in the past around, around COVID, around free speech. Um, talk to us specifically about you know, the green energy aspect of, of, uh, of, the, of the Bill Gates agenda.
6: Certainly. So I work with Peter Schweitzer at the Government Accountability Institute, where we follow the money. That's sort of our motto. And uh, usually we're looking into politics, but uh, decided, you know, especially amid the pandemic, uh, to follow the money to the top, to the people who are using the pandemic as a, quote, opportunity. I mean, Klaus Schwab is the guy over there on the the left of the book cover and uh, the World Economic Forum. And then you kind of get into Bill Gates. What's he doing? He's a software guy. How is he the author of our public health policies during the pandemic. Um, and so we followed the money. We, we saw that they, uh, in some cases, like Mark Zuckerberg's case, he almost doubled his net worth over the course of the pandemic. Bill Gates added tens of billions of dollars. Um, the rest of them did the same. I mean, Elon Musk almost quadrupled up. And so, uh, and that's not a problem. Making money is not a problem. The problem is how they make their money. And that is by sort of seizing control over the industries. That dominate every aspect of our life. So we, you know, we talked about food. Um, there's also energy. There's also uh, transportation. And uh, these billionaires are different than the billionaires of the past. They actually think that their uh, wealth and influence gives them the power and the authority to tell the rest of us how to live our lives.
1: Uh- I am curious about this idea that they are different from the billionaires of the past. I mean, we were recently talking, for example, in the context of the East Palestine r- uh, rail disaster, about how uh, railroad moguls had lobbied to prevent safety mechanisms that they knew could prevent exactly such a disaster. And the lever followed up with reporting, explaining how even in the wake of East Palestine, um, uh, oil company Occidental Petroleum lobbied to prevent further safety mechanisms going into effect, even though the country was shocked and horrified. But we by what we saw in East Palestine. You had a story just a week ago uh, come out about how there was proof that the high egg prices people have been experiencing weren't attributable to just— um, post-COVID supply chain inflation, as so many of these companies claimed, but that there was an egg-fixing scheme that actually had been in effect, a, a jury—a uh, federal jury ruled that just last week. So it does seem like there's always been a pattern of people who are extremely wealthy using their power to lobby for advantageous tax policies so they can keep more of their wealth, and for legal changes, as we saw in the wake of Citizens United, that allowed them to more directly influence our political system and lobby for policies, regulations and the like that are in their interest, often at the expense of the broader public. So what, in your view, has changed?
6: Well, and in, 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 to be clear, yeah, corruption is as old as time. And, uh, you know, the Rockefellers, for example, are a major uh, entity in this book, going back to the, you know, early 1900s and, and what they're up to. And of course, you've heard of standard oil and, and destroying competition. So what this book is really about is the centralization of the industries, uh, much, much greater than we've seen it before in the past. I mean, sure, you've got competition, but just take the, the food example. So uh, for Bill Gates, we uncovered this strategy that Microsoft used in the 1990s. It got it into trouble with the Justice Department. There was the famous antitrust suit. And the strategy was called embrace, extend, extinguish. And uh, in the first phase, in the embrace phase, uh, Microsoft would enter an industry, then they would expand their reach, they would extend their reach within the industry. This would be the internet browser industry. And and all the time they would say, oh, nothing, you know, we're not making any waves, we're just kind of making a great product. But then comes the extinguish phase, and that's where they extinguish the competition. In, the, in Microsoft's case, it was Net, uh, Netscape browser, and they wanted to, quote, cut off the air supply. So now you're seeing that in a lot of other industries, in energy, uh, in food, where they want to extinguish the competition, and so Bill Gates. I mean, you played the clip, uh, the you know the, the other day where he says the planet's going to be fine. That's totally different from what he's been saying for years. He's been saying for years there's a climate emergency, a climate disaster. This is why we need to ban cows. Now the politicians who talk about these policies, they don't use the words ban cows. They say things like use words like methane and reduction or something, but. Uh, that is what you are they extinguishing the competition there, so that the fake meat companies, those provide the solutions to the hypothetical crisis that I guess Bill Gates says is not actually a crisis anymore.
0: Yeah, so from my perspective, so I don't—you know—you can disagree. Brianna can disagree. I don't care if a Bill Gates-type figure gets to be really successful um, because he beats the competition and and or that they, they can't compete with him. I, you know, I don't—I'm not big into the antitrust kind of stuff, I'm like, well, that's, you know, tough, tough luck. If Microsoft's better than everyone else, that's how it goes. But my—when where I, when I do get concerned is when um, these billionaires then have all this wealth and influence and can change government policy to either have control over our lives or to make the regulatory environment impossible for competitors or to get, you know, more subsidies for y- your industry versus this industry, that kind of thing. It, we, the, the, I mean, the word control oligarchs to me, speaks to that kind of fear, we, you know, we know these billionaires get together, World Economic Forum, Davos-type things, come up with policies like the ones that emerged during COVID, which, which, weren't, which weren't voluntarily, right, which were ostensibly for our benefit. But Joe Biden's administration ended up requiring um, lots and lots of people that they would have to get the COVID shot, just, you know, for, for one example. And then we know uh, Bill Gates, you know, had invested in Pfizer, that kind of thing. So, uh, so you know, what can you speak to those fears as well? Certainly, and I, and I agree with you. To your point,
6: it's not a problem just making money by making a better product that people love and uh, turn you into a, a gigantic corporation like Microsoft. The problem really becomes when you use your power and influence to change the regulations, to uh, make the playing field uneven. And uh, so with the energy sector, um, the, the control that's happening there is is, is sort of insane. I mean, I, th- I didn't think it was true, but just imagine for a second, uh, you wake up in the middle of the night freezing. I mean, in the example uh, in the book, people wake up in the middle of the night sweating. It's the middle of a heat wave. You go to your thermostat. You try to change the temperature in your home, uh, but you find you've been locked out. The utility company has locked you out. You don't have control over the like the temperature in your own home. Uh, Amazon's making smart thermostats that have this capability. Google's making smart thermostats that have this capability. And so when their companies seem to benefit from you losing control over certain facets of your life, that's a big problem. And so we've tracked down every industry that they're doing this kind of stuff in.
1: I wonder, do you cover some of the examples that come to mind for me uh, in the 90s, automobile manufacturers and oil companies targeting and trying to kill uh, electric car development or some of the lobbying that utilities, to take your example, have done to try to prevent people from um, buying and installing their own solar panels?
6: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a huge problem. The fact that, you know, regulations prevent you from being able to go off grid. I mean, even collecting rainwater in some places is a problem. You can't have backyard chickens in some places. Um, And this is really what the whole theme of the book is, is the centralization of power. And to your point, uh, intellectual property plays a huge role. It's really about the patents. I mean, Bill Gates did not invest in the fake meat companies like Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, until they had secured the patents on protein change, which seems sort of Orwellian or dystopian in and of itself with the, I mean, Monsanto's in the book with Terminator seeds, um, I mean patenting foods and seeds seems wrong and especially if you're working to ban the uh, generic equivalent which would be like cows so we, we kind of get into like the like uh, how patents grant an individual a 20 year long monopoly and so um, with the with the oil companies uh, like Standard Oil and the Rockefellers they've uh, taken this new green position but it's only after they secured investments into the so-called green companies so mm-hmm. uh, you know, solar and wind is really like the patented technology. Uh, oil and gas is like the generic. All of the patents, in a lot of ways, have run out on the way to get uh, traditional carbon sources of energy, which is why it's so cheap and abundant. But uh, the new technologies, those are all patented, and you can't really have like a wildcatter, uh, you know, scrappy young guy go out and strike a. Strike a claim in an oil well in the uh, nuclear power or wind industries. There can be no Jed Clampets, you know, Beverly Hillbillies in the the solar and wind and nuclear industries. They're tightly regulated. They're tightly controlled, and they're becoming tightly monopolized. Mm. James,
1: it seems like what you're describing in some ways is a, a kind of corporate capture that obviously billionaires, given their affluence, are able to. Uh, to effect. So I wonder what you see as a solution. Um, The left-leaning response would be to say let's look at antitrust, let's look at uh, caps on wealth or at least a wealth tax to try to limit the extent to which these people can use their money to lobby government specifically for regulations that are favorable to them. What in your view is the correct response to this problem?
6: Yeah, be careful with uh, re- regulations just because it can, uh, it can have unintended consequences. I mean, I think the biggest thing people need to do is take a personal responsibility and in in, in vote with their dollars and, you know, you, buying local as, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> simple as that sounds and, uh, you know, it's actually harder than it seems because it can be more expensive, but uh, not giving money to the mon- monopolies as best as you can. Maybe mm. starting a backyard garden in terms of the food and uh, in in with the chickens and all of that. But uh, it's really voting with your dollars. Um, in terms of regulations, uh, I think we need to stop funding these public private partnerships. It's kind of like welfare for oligarchs. I mean, a lot of these supernational organizations like the World Economic Forum, why do they need our tax dollars uh, to fund the World Economic Forum or the World Health Organization? Uh, Bill Gates has basically funded the World Health Organization. So why do we need to fund it? Mm. Um, so there's a lot of. Uh, taxpayer money that is going, in the form of welfare, to corporations that Bill Gates owns. TerraPower is his nuclear co- power company. That gets tens of millions, if not over a hundred million dollars, in uh, taxpayer assistance. Um, and if it's a profitable idea, if it's a great idea, then they don't need the, uh, the taxpayer's welfare.
0: Hmm. So thankful that you were here, and bringing up the intellectual property aspect of this, I think that's really important and, and undercovered, and is something that both people on the right and left can be really um, worried about, uh, abuse of that entire concept um, just being totally unfair and not in the social best interest. Um, the book is Controllogarchs, and we're so happy to have you here with us, Seamus Bruner. It's been a pleasure.
1: Representative Liz Cheney is coming for former President Donald Trump and the GOP in her new book, Oath and Honor. Liz Cheney condemns her former Republican colleagues as enablers and collaborators who after the 2020 election were, quote, willing to violate their oath in the Constitution out of political expediency and loyalty to Donald Trump. Mm
0: -hmm. Cheney blasts the GOP's actions since 2016 as cowardice, notes that so many were willing to support Trump, who she calls, quote, the most dangerous man ever to inhabit the Oval Office. In her book, Cheney recounts a scene in the GOP cloakroom before the January 6th Capitol riot where Republican Congressman Mark Green name dropped Trump saying the things we do for the orange Jesus. Here's more from her book. Let's watch.
1: And she writes, get ready. Cheney, Mar-a-Lago? What the hell, Kevin? Kevin McCarthy, they're really worried. Trump's not eating. So they asked me to come see him. Cheney, what? You went to Mar-a-Lago because Trump's not eating? McCarthy, yeah, he's really depressed. (laughs) Um,
0: And uh, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow plans to interview Cheney on her show. Here's that announcement. So heads up, something you are probably going to want to see. Um, One week from tonight, Monday next week, I'm going to be speaking for the first time ever with Liz Cheney the former Republican congresswoman from Wyoming. Liz Cheney, of course, was chair of the House Republican Conference. That's one of the Republican senior leadership jobs in Congress. But her vocal opposition to Donald Trump, her role as the very outspoken vice chair of the January 6th investigation last year, um, those cost her her job in Republican politics. She was kicked out of Republican leadership.
1: Okay, so Rachel Maddow celebrating breathlessly that she's about to interview Liz Cheney has gotten skewered from people across uh, the uh, political spectrum. I saw leftists saying, hey, remember that she voted 93% of the time with Trump? She's your hero now because she showed like an inkling of you know, mm-hmm. courage and integrity at the end. Glenn Greenwald tweeted out, hilarious. Number one, CNN is acting like they got a great scoop because Liz Cheney gave them her new anti-GOP book. Two, she chose CNN because she knows it's dumb liberals who will buy this. Three, she pompously called her book Oath and Honor. And four, she lost her last race by 36 points. This is what, this is what MSNBC does. They will happily host a never-Trump Republican long before they would even consider hosting someone who is left-leaning, Marianne Williamson, as we talked about in an earlier segment, or someone like Glenn Greenwald, right? But they will breathlessly platform and give give, uh, compliments to anyone who has ever criticized Donald Trump. Yeah,
0: the only constituency for Cheneyism is, in fact— the MSNBC yes. viewer there is and and it's just it's always been the case the amount of attention the never trump republicans get from the mainstream media they have prominent positions as columnists the the newspaper columnist from the right perspective is a never trumper every time that that view which has never been popular never. among the base the base loves Trump, they like his policies, maybe they have mixed feelings on whether he's the best candidate again, and not so mixed, because he's easily going to win the nomination. But uh, but for people who hate Trump, that there is a party for that. It's the Democrats. Right. And it's, it's like, self-obvious—it's obvious. That's yeah. why Liz Cheney, like you said, lost her election by yeah. so much. This stance that she made against everything Trump stands for is just—is not part of the Republican Party. And in fact, I would argue that— her version of the Republican Party, the Cheney family version, which was relentlessly neoconservative, um, was was actually at odds with the base all along. Um, people who spoke out against it did. It, it took the establishment uh, media and eco political ecosystem by surprise every time they broke out. People like Ron Paul back before Trump, and then Donald Trump himself, taking them all by surprise by expressing a foreign policy totally at odds with Cheneyism, but actually popular with. Conservatives. Yeah. So this is why she has no party anymore.
1: Yeah. And by the way, it's why so many people on the left who aren't even that far left feel like they don't have a party anymore either, because it's not a Republican Party and Democratic Party. It's a Republican Party and a not Trump party. And everybody who has politics that aren't just being resisting, right. resistant to Trump, don't have a place to go. I'm curious what you make of the um, uh, McCarthy clip that was embedded in there, where he seems to want to go um, and help. Donald Trump work through his, like, s- his soft girl summer <laughs> help him make sure that he's eating and feeling comfortable Absolutely. and all that—does that, does that resonate with you as um, a legitimate excuse uh, for Kevin McCarthy's behavior for people who are were critical of Donald Trump in the moment for uh, attempting to allegedly overturn the election?
0: I mean, <laughs> I don't know. He, uh, McCarthy clearly wanted to keep a close relationship with Trump for exactly a moment like— trying to become speaker and then hold on to the speakership, which didn't work out too (laughs) well. Um, Although uh, Trump—Trump didn't lift enough of a finger to prevent McCarthy's downfall, but he was he was initially supportive of keeping McCarthy um, He didn't work that hard at it Trump does you know he, he doesn't stick his neck out exactly for for people who've been kind to him in the past um, But he didn't do anything against McCarthy, so it was probably a good move to keep
1: Trump close What do we think McCarthy was doing to make sure that Trump was eating do you think he was Spoonful you know? Airplaning <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the no. What Trump Trump likes to eat like
0: McDonald's, like fast food, right? Yeah. Or uh, or steak. Uh, what, what Well done steak with ketchup on it. Oof. So maybe he, we, he would be squeezing the ketchup onto Donald Trump's <laughs> he's steak. To wear gloves, putting his bib know, he's gotta wear he's, he's a germaphobe. <laughs> tying it for him. Here's your steak, Mr. President. Oh, goodness uh, that's gracious. That's Trump's power. He could absolutely get all of them to, to, um, to do. Remember the dinner with, uh, that he had with Romney mm-hmm. and it was, it was during, you know, Game of Thrones was big back then so everyone put a, put a say your name, my name is Reek for the Ramsey Bolton uh, Theon yes. Greyjoy thing. Yes. It was, It's just totally accurate. Every yeah. Time. Trump, you know, and, and, you know, say what you will <clears throat> about Liz Janey but she is right about this that a lot of them don't like Trump and will, when will badmouth him behind his, his back, but will not stand up to him. Mm-hmm. Will not go public mm-hmm. um, the way she did. Now it, yeah. it's going public the way she did. You know, unpersoned her effectively within the Republican Party, but has led to you know, she's going to be a successful Democratic media figure for the rest of her life. It
1: it might not have unpersoned her if everybody had kind of shown that integrity at the same time. There was this kind of memory-hold moment after 1-6 where a lot of Republicans were saying things like, I don't approve of what happened at the Capitol. In the moment, it was very obvious, very much an obvious embarrassment to the Republican Party. And then when it became clear that Trump wasn't going away, that he was going to be able to mount another campaign, everybody got their ducks back in a row. And we were watching a clip uh, earlier on the view of Alyssa Farah, who used to work for the Trump administration and was one of the earlier people to break away and start to criticize him, say exactly that, that she knows so many people. She was a witness to so many people who had issues with Donald Trump up to, through, and after 1-6, but who were unwilling to say so. And And I do wonder what the alternative universe looks like, in which everyone had just stuck to their guns. Would the Republicans have been able to basically... Defeat Trumpism in some way, or pivot to someone who is Trump-like but not with all of that baggage. If they had all done so together, or would it have been a repeat of two thousand and sixteen, where many, many people did try to beat Trump and they weren't able to get between him and public sympathy? They just sympathy? kept.
0: They kept expecting it's better for us if we don't attack him, and he just goes away of his own accord quietly. Wouldn't that be nice? And they keep thinking that he's going to do that, and I don't know why he's never going to do that. He's he'll be the twenty twenty eight nominee for the Republican, maybe the 2032 one, I mean, as, for as long as he wants. If he wants it, it'll be his. And they'll keep yeah. saying, well, he, he, this is it, this is the last time we have to do Trump stuff for Trump. No. As long as he's alive, it'll be his nomination. And he's going
1: to live forever because his insides are preserved by all of the McDonald's that he's eating.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll just have (laughs) everything you could ever hope for in a political news show. All right.
1: (laughs) Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See ya.
3: Goodbye.